Again, Ephesians 4, verse 25. So last week, Paul, what he did is he warned us. He gave us a warning in verses 17 through 24. Uh, But this week, as we see in verses 25 through 32, he gives us an example of what happens when we don't necessarily heed such a warning. So last week, we talked about how Jesus frees people from, from prison cells of death. Free forgiveness. Jesus gives life forever, guilty no more, freedom from bondage, child of God, new creation. This is what Jesus frees us to. He liberates us into such a life. And yet new creations called Christians can choose to walk back to their old prison cells. Almost inexplicably, they walk back to their old lives and live like they used to before they knew Jesus. In other words, Christians can relapse. Now, when you hear that term, relapse, what, what kinds of things come to mind? We, we often grieve he relapsed back into addiction or into alcoholism. He relapsed back into sexual immorality or running around, we'll call it. Maybe relapsed back into workaholism. And look at verse 19. Paul warns us not to relapse back into things like sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And those are the things that often come to mind when we think about relapsing. Few of us have ever said he relapsed back into frustration. She relapsed back into irritation. They relapsed back into anger. And yet, anger is Paul's example of how a new identity can help us realistically deal with old problems. A new identity can help us realistically deal with old problems. Giving ourselves over to anger, frustration, bitterness is part of that that old way of thinking. It was the thinking that produced only death in our lives. And now when anger arises, there's a way through God's grace, God's grace can help us harness anger and actually use it productively. We, We pick up Paul's line of reasoning in Ephesians 4, verse 35. Sorry, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word this morning. We recognize that that anger is a part of our lives, so we ask for your help to deal with it well. We don't want to deal with it the way we used to deal with it. We want to deal with it the way we should as your children, as representatives of the King of Kings. Help us, please, by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Romans had, the ancient Romans had this saying, ir fur brevis est, 
and admit that anger is a brief madness. Anger is a brief madness. And, and I think most of us think of anger in this way, that, that quick-tempered, incredible Hulk kind of anger that just seizes us and possesses us, and it's like a white flash, and we can't remember anything else. And that is certainly anger, but it's not the only kind of anger, nor is it the most common, really, kind of anger, is it, in our lives. For example, many of us experience days when little goes as planned, and we carry home with us a yet-to-be-tapped-into frustration, such that when we get in the door, we're immediately touchy towards people we love. We, we carry that frustration with, with us. And that's the way we express it. Some of us bury feelings of injustice and hurt to the point where it makes us sick, unable to sleep, totally stressed. Others of us keep, keep a record of wrongdoing. It's an unofficial record in our mind of wrongdoing such that when we interact with the wrongdoer, we kind of hint, we passive aggressively hint that they've, they've wronged us in some way. And that's the way we express our anger. For some, because of, because of past hurts and, and unjust treatment that you've experienced, anger is expressed in an attitude of, of defensiveness, of coldness, keeping others at arm's length because you don't want them to reject you first. These are typically the ways we often express anger. Not, for example, I, I, I'm not a, I don't have a quick-tempered, incredible Hulk type of anger in my life, but it doesn't mean I don't have an anger problem. We don't ever really say anger is our, our problem. We say things like, I get frustrated, I get irritated, I get annoyed, but these are all just softer labels, really, for anger. And, and what's so wonderful about our passage and what Paul does here is brilliant. He points out that anger as an emotion can actually lead us in two very different directions. It doesn't have to only be bad. Anger could be either constructive or destructive. So if that's the case, let's get constructive. And to do that, we first have to get constructive about our own anger issues. We have to look inside ourselves, go internal, and deal with what's in there. And then we can get constructive outwardly. So that's what we're going to do this morning. First, Let's look at constructive and destructive anger because both exist in the world we live in. Verse 26 presents one of the most fascinating statements in the New Testament. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. You would think Paul would say something to us like, if you get angry, don't sin. Or, hey, you're going to get angry. But when you do, make sure you don't sin. Instead, Paul expresses this radical possibility for those of us who can't turn on and off our emotions like a light switch. That it's actually compatible to be both angry and still walk in a right relationship with God. That is possible. Be angry and do not sin. Anger is an emotion that accompanies a judgment we make. And often it's a right judgment, a good judgment. When you get angry, think about what you're doing. When you get angry, you're saying that matters and it's wrong. You're saying that matters and it's wrong. That's, what, that's when anger can be so good, human, and potentially constructive. God is just and we are made in his image. So when you experience getting the shaft, when you identify someone getting manipulated, when you see something that's 
where you want to shout that's, that's inequality, that's unequal. Or when you see a friend for whom nothing ever seems to go right, that's, that's good to say that matters and it's wrong. Can you imagine a world without anger and being able to identify that? Temporary measured anger can be God's gift of a right judgment. It can be actually very good. Anger is designed by God, however, to last about as long as, as Paul's statement about it. Be angry. And Paul, notice, quickly continues, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So God's gift of anger has a soon-come expiration date. Anger is good, but it turns rotten quicker than those bananas you bought last week, right? Those ones that are still sitting there on your shelf. That's what anger does. Just like that, it goes rotten and spoils. Paul's point here about not letting the sun go down isn't supposed to be a firm deadline that, you know, you better deal with your anger before 6.15 p.m. Rather, use anger quickly and ditch it quickly for something more constructive. Use it, then ditch it. That's why we hear anger in our passage used once positively, three times negatively. Positive because when it helps you judge right from wrong, it's helpful negatively because sometimes we hold on to that feeling and we let it fuel us and it ruins us. That's when anger becomes not only destructive, but demonic. That's what Paul says here, right? Give no opportunity to the devil. Because of anger, because of frustration, because of bitterness, because of annoyance, whatever we want to call it, We can no longer see the other person's point of view. We get so fixated, we can't even think about anything else. It consumes us, right? You can't see how easily the oppressed can turn into the aggressors. Even people who are are rightly victims, if they shout their cause long enough and angrily enough, and maybe that's even us, if you've ever been in that experience, you know that you can quickly turn into someone who's aggressive or how subtly self-righteousness blinds us to what is really just our own wants and desires and goals. That's what happens when we hold on to anger for too long. Paul uses about as forceful language as he can to talk about long-term anger, anger that goes unchecked. He says it's a demonic opportunity, and it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 30, he says this. So Satan uses long-term anger. Our enemy uses long-term anger to ruin relationships from without And we grieve the God who lives within. So externally, internally, our life goes to shambles because of this long-term anger. So here's the message in a nutshell to combat this this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Use short-term anger to show long-term love. Use short-term anger to show long-term love. And that's a wonderful, pithy saying, but you might immediately ask, okay, that sounds impossible. It's nice to say that. It's good on a greeting card maybe, on a pillow. But what about actually doing it in life? Well, let's look first to Jesus, where we should look. Right? Jesus gives a number of examples. There's a number of examples of short-term anger in his life. Here's two examples of short-term anger in the life of Jesus. The first comes in John chapter 11. Jesus observes the response of his friends to the death of his friend, Lazarus. Lazarus is dying. He's dead now. And he looks at his friends, and they're, of course, grieved about this, sad about this. 
And it says that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved really connotates not just being sad, but it connotates indignation. I grew up hearing, oh, Jesus was sad. Jesus wept. Well, actually, Jesus was indignant. He was angry at death. He was angry at the sin in the world that causes death, the devil who, who furthers and exacerbates sin and death. Jesus, for this brief moment, is angry, but it lasts no longer than a few minutes. How does Jesus use his anger? How does Jesus use it? He responds with love by raising Lazarus from death. He gives Lazarus life. So Jesus uses his anger to show long-term love. Here's another example from Mark chapter 3. Jesus encounters a man in a Capernaum synagogue. This man has a withered hand and has had that for his whole life. So Jesus uses this opportunity to turn to the Pharisees and say, hey, religious leaders, religious guys who know all the answers, here's a question. What should I do? What's better? Help this man or just wait till the Sabbath is over? And they say it's more important to keep the rules, Jesus. More important to keep the rules and show compassion. So Jesus looked at them with anger, it says in chapter 3, verse 5. He looked at them with anger. Well, what does Jesus do with his anger? How long does Jesus hold on to it? Does Does he judge them? Does he rebuke them? Does he smite them with a holy smiting? No. No, he, he, he turns and he heals the man's hand. See? Jesus uses short-term anger to love people back to life and to wholeness. It's amazing. So emotion helps Jesus rightly judge the situation. He looks at these situations and he says, that matters and it's wrong. And then he loves at the source of that wrong. He loves in a place where it's, it's often so undeserved. That's what Jesus does. So, so how might we be like Jesus in that way? How might, when, when those moments come up where, where we express irritation, we see that matters, that's wrong. How might we do likewise? Well, first of all, I think we have to deal with our own anger. We have to look inside ourselves. We gotta be inwardly constructive. Get inwardly constructive. Now Paul's gonna go on, he's gonna address how to be outwardly constructive, how to deal with anger interpersonally, but first we need to get whole again ourselves. Anger is an emotion for which it's so important to be introspective because it's so easily to lose perspective. Right, we can go from, from righteous crusader to cornered animal with anger, right? Righteous crusader, I'm all for justice, I'm all for what's right, to the cornered animal, I'm going to slash out at anyone in like zero to 60, quicker than we know it, in a blink of an eye. That's what happens with anger. And so it's so important to look inside ourselves and deal with that frustration, that bitterness, that we might not even realize is there sometimes. In the book of James, the author James addresses this head on. James chapter four, I'm just going to read this briefly to also be up on the screen. James talks about what happens inside of us, what causes this anger. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So James goes on to say that 
God gives us grace. He gives us practical help with anger. But he still addresses one more issue with anger, and specifically conflict, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Let me read that for you as well. So I'm skipping down a little bit here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Look at verse 12 here. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James, two, sorry, James, James 4 reveals how anger unaddressed turns rotten so quickly. First we demand, my will be done. I, no matter what, I, this is so important to me, I want this done. So first we demand and then we exalt. We exalt ourselves, not God. Right? Because we want something so badly, so passionately, we want it to be made right for us, we will, we will judge everything else accordingly. Because I am right. So James 4, what it does, it helps us look inside ourselves. Think and, and, and sort of stop the judge inside. Think about what happens inside your mind when you get angry and you, and you stew on it for a while. Doesn't a little courtroom kind of play out in your mind like a Judge Judy kind of, kind of, kind of situation? You, you play all the roles, though, in the courtroom. You play the prosecuting roles, right? That's wrong, and, and you shouldn't have done that. And you, you are the innocent victim and the offended plaintiff. You are, you are the zealous investigator, finding out every little detail of why you've been wronged. You are the police serving a summons to the offender. You're the district attorney pressing home irrefutable charges. Who can disagree? I'm right. You provide eyewitness testimony to the crimes, and finally, you are the judge who alone can mete out righteous judgment. So that courtroom plays out in our mind, and all of a sudden, we're blind to what's going on in our hearts. And that's where James 4 encourages us to, to look inside ourselves and ask two questions in the, in the midst, in the heat of our frustration. I would summarize it like this, okay? James asks us to ask the question, what do I want? And then secondly, how am I playing God to get it? What do I want so badly, almost so blindly, and how am I playing God to get what I want? Let me give you an example from my own life. I have this reflexive response of frustration. Every day I drive from Georgetown to Savannah in the evening. All right, I, even though I know it's coming, 4.30 to 7, like clockwork, I still let it get under my skin. I can't even get past the first stoplight where the cricket fields are. I'm backed up. And, and, I, and it's so hard in that moment not to just get frustrated. Ugh. So inconvenienced, this is so wrong. What, what? And I have to ask myself, I should ask myself, okay, why? Like, number one, what does James tell us? What, what do I want here? Well, okay, I want to get home to Katie and the boys, and that's right. But if I look a little deeper, if I kind of pull up the hood and look underneath, sometimes I want to be in control, I want to be efficient with my time, and this isn't according to my schedule, right? I, I don't want to look bad. I don't look like a bad father to Katie and the boys, right? That's a people-pleasing reason. I want to look good to others. Sometimes I want to go home and just grab my paddleboard and get on the ocean, right? I want to do what I want in my own time. Now, how am I playing God to get that? Well, oftentimes I sit up on the judge seat, 
Right? I sometimes judge. Not always, but I sometimes judge the government for not finishing the Linford Pearson Highway and its two lanes in under three years. All right? I just get upset about that. All right? I'm just confessing that. It's not right of me. These people work very hard. I'm very grateful. But it gets upset. Sometimes I get frustrated and I judge bad drivers who dart in front of me or who don't show the courtesy to let me in because I'm important and I have somewhere to be. Right? It's just a frustration. Sometimes I'm even, I judge myself like, no, you probably just deserve this. Look at you. Look at your attitude. Everybody's getting judged here. And then I try to, like God, God is in control. I try to take control. Right? I might change my driving habits. All right, try to take control of the situation. I won't get into detail what those things are. All right, but you understand, right? Even when we feel our frustrations justified, asking these two little questions, what do I want here? How am I playing God to get it? It can help us. That first question helps us identify our idolatry. What's more important to me than even God here? Showing Jesus here, acting like a child of God, being his representative here. Second question, how am I going to play God to get it? It encourages us to, Release control and trust our Father who loves us and knows everything that's going on in our lives, including this is going to happen. So we need to repent, get right with God who so wants to forgive us and restore us to wholeness. And when we do that, then we're in a position to be outwardly constructive in dealing with our anger. So that's the third point this morning. Let's get outwardly constructive with our anger. Your short-term anger has helped you rightly judge. That matters and it's wrong. So we get back to Ephesians. The Apostle Paul gives us a number of different ways to be outwardly constructive with our anger. Let's look at a number of different tools in the toolbox Paul gives us to say, here's a way you can use anger to show love towards others. Number one, he says a loving confrontation. Look at verse 25 with me, if you would. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Paul's echoing a more well-known truth you might know in verse 15, to speak the truth in love. Here he's saying, again, he's echoing, speak the truth, for we are members of one another. And that's the motive. We're members of one another. Paul's using the analogy of the body. We're connected, guys, in ways that go beyond Sunday morning, beyond our, our uh, community groups, beyond our ministry teams, beyond coffee back there on a Sunday and just relating with people. We're connected in ways beyond that. So after identifying that matters and it's wrong, if we avoid having a loving confrontation with someone, we're not only potentially damaging the other person, ourselves, but the entire body of Christ. We're members of one another. So from time to time, I I experience in my body the pain of a sciatic nerve pain from time to time in, in my backside, all right? And when I experience that, it runs up my back, runs down my legs, sometimes all the way down to my toes, Similarly, if, if, if a person is inflicting unaddressed pain, it affects more than just them. It affects the whole body. We are members of one another. Everybody begins to feel the pain, so we need to speak the truth in love. How do you do this? You're frustrated, you're irritated, someone has hurt you. How do you do this? Well, here's some just suggestions. Okay, first, pray. First, ask God for help because we know we're going to need it. Ask God specifically that for help to get your motives right, to, to, to want to be reconciled, not to be right, right, in that conversation, not to prove yourself right, to be reconciled. You know, secondly, confront the person face-to-face and in private wherever possible. Email is not a good way to confront people. Text messaging, even WhatsApps, 
You got the use of emojis now. I know that can make things feel a lot happier if you throw in a winky face and a, and a kissy face. But still, it's interpreted wrongly. Then call someone up if you have to. Confront specifically. Avoid making sort of general broad statements. Saying things like always or never. That never helps. Be specific. Say this specifically. That's kind of what hurt my feelings. And then plan to follow up with someone soon after. Some of us, when we hear stuff, like we hear truth that's hard to hear, but it's done in love. Some of us receive that truth like dinosaurs. We're just like, we just gulp it down. Boom. And the others of us are like, are like cows. We got to chew on it. Right? Like we don't necessarily receive it well at first. But we chew on it, we chew on it. It deserves a second conversation. So have it. So loving confrontation is one of the tools in the toolbox Paul gives us to say, hey, here's a way to use your anger, your short-term anger, to show long-term love. Another tool in the toolbox is generosity. Probably the most out-of-place verse here in Ephesians 4 that we read was verse 28, which says, let, uh, let the thief no longer steal, let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What does thievery have to do with anger and love? And I thought about this for a while, and I, I actually think it does have something to do with, with anger, because a person who steals often feels justifiably angry. They, they convince themselves that they deserve something, someone else of privilege or greater means, or just because they are who they are, they don't deserve it, I deserve it, they harden their hearts, they steal, and Paul says, don't do that, he says, instead, let them labor doing honest work in his own hands, but notice the point, the whole point of, 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 of working is so that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What's interesting is that word share in the original Greek means to distribute personally rather than through a third party. So Paul has in mind here, uh, not necessarily online giving, you know, running for a good cause so you raise money for it, or, or a GoFundMe campaign. He has in mind a tangible interaction that takes place when you personally are generous towards someone else. You give to them face-to-face. And that can be very helpful, right? Especially to someone in need. And though every bone in your body may resist, that someone in need might be the person who has offended you, who has angered you, who has irritated you. When Jesus says, love your enemies, how do you read that? I sometimes read that as such a harsh statement. Like, who would actually say they have an enemy? Like, very few of us would probably have someone, they look around and say, that's my enemy. But you know what Jesus does when he says that? He's helping us use short-term anger. He's helping us say, yeah, that's my enemy for the short term. Until I love them. Until I demonstrate practically love towards them. I'm generous towards them such that I begin to love them. Loving someone who wrongs you doesn't mean you start with conjuring up good feelings in your heart and your mind. You know, you do something for them. You're, you're generous towards them. That's why the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Right? Do something that shows love and generosity. What does that look like in our culture? Perhaps it means offering to buy someone lunch or buy them a beer. Right? It means offering them a ride somewhere, baking them someone sweet. Or if you're in a position of influence or of means to be generous, do what you have to be generous, right? Or, or just very simply, do something you would do for a friend that you would be thoughtful of towards someone else. Do it for the person who's angered you. 
And what I've found is that when your actions lead, your feelings often follow. When your actions lead, then your feelings come. So often, the kindness and the tenderheartedness that Paul speaks of here that, that isn't there before for that person, that follows so often. That's another tool for the toolbox. Be generous. Paul also talks about word building. In verse 29, encouraging other people with our words, word building. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, friends, it's usually hurt people who hurt people. And so often that's true with respect to our words. When we keep that in mind, it becomes not easier, not only easier to, to build up and impart grace, it's easier for those who are hurt to hear you. People who are hurt often hear you. Notice that such building and fitting and gracious words are not for ev- everyone. They're for those who hear. Not everyone will hear you. You have a specific, a specific audience. Grace to those who hear. So ask yourself, who is the most likely person to hear an encouraging word? Who's most likely to be taken aback, to be surprised, and to welcome a gracious word? It might be, but it's probably not going to be your pastor, your worship leader, your community group leader, unless they've hurt your feelings. It's not going to be your most compliant child or your always encouraging coworker. It's going to be that person who hurt you. He or she maybe has endured a lifetime of, of discouragement, of deprivation. They've experienced hurt so often. So they're much more likely to be surprised, to welcome, to, to cherish a word of grace. And that's, a, that's something we can do when we identify anger and irritation. Let me pay that back with a loving word and build into their lives. The last tool Paul mentions here, to love someone well when you are first irritated with them. In verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you forgiveness. How, how can we be constructive with our forgiveness? Here's a couple things that's really important to do, I think, when you forgive someone. Number one, identify what specifically needs forgiveness because that's going to help you later on to never bring it up again. When you say, I forgive you for this, that's a, that's a mental reminder, it's a mental bookmark. I'm not going to bring this up again when I talk to you, even though it might bother me. The other thing is to declare forgiveness out loud. Speak it out loud. Actually say it. At the end of his life, Jesus declared the power of speaking forgiveness to his apostles. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven. If, they're with, if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. In other words, if you speak forgiveness, there is forgiveness. There, there's a power there. So let's do that. That's not easy to say or do, I understand, on our own strength. And that's why Paul's final statement on love and anger is so important. Look at that again in verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus is our power source, friends. Jesus is just not our example for how to deal with short-term anger, like we saw earlier. He is the fuel. He is the motivation. He is the energy to love when we experience that little spark of anger. Can you imagine all the angry people who walked at home that day thinking that their justified anger had won? I'm speaking of Pontius Pilate, speaking of the high priest, I'm speaking of the Jewish leaders, the crowd who shouted for Barabbas in anger, the soldiers who spat on Jesus, Satan himself. 
And yet Jesus is the one who's loved, who's followed, who's adored by millions since. Jesus. God. God who is the only one who has the right to be long-term angry at us because of our sin and rebellion. And yet he yielded himself to love us all the way to eternal life. It was Jesus who said out loud, of all who'd go home feeling like angry winners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So stop and see in your mind's eye all those times you believed anger would help you win, would help you win the day. And now see Jesus. See Jesus who sacrificially loves us at the source of wrong and places where it's least deserved, especially my own heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word and for being so practical in it because so many of us still deal with anger the way we used to deal with it. We deal with our irritation, our frustration, our annoyance, like we used to before we trusted you. And yet we realize that anger can be a good emotion, short-term anger, addressed anger, anger that lasts just for a moment to help us identify that's wrong and it matters. So, So God, we ask for your help to deal with anger in our own hearts first. Absolutely. Help us, help us look at our hearts. What is making us angry? What is so important to me here? And how am I playing God to get that? And after dealing with that on the inside, God, help us use those tools that Paul gives us here in his word to show that long-term love. Father, for some of us today, that's going to be going and having a loving confrontation with someone. For some of us, it's just going to be generous, generosity, practically loving someone with our resources where we've identified hurt and anger. Sometimes it's going to be building someone someone up with words. Father, maybe for for others of us, it's going to be speaking forgiveness. Whatever it might be, Father, we want to be people who represent you, Jesus, because you have so loved us, because God in Christ has forgiven us. Even though, God, you had the right to be angry at us forever, you didn't let that anger get in the way of love. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.